Hey, Pitchfork listeners, Goldie here. We spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about neoliberalism, where it went wrong, how it started. And one of the common narratives is that it arose in the 1970s as a response to the failure of Keynesianism to deal with stagflation, the era in which we had double-digit unemployment and double-digit inflation at the same time. But that raises the question, what is Keynesianism? And who is John Maynard Keynes? Well, Keynes was without a doubt the most influential economist of the first three quarters of the 20th century. It was his ideas that guided the policies of the New Deal and that essentially defined American liberalism in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. And while many neoliberal economists continue to try to discredit Keynes, it turns out many of his ideas are as relevant today as they ever were. Well, recently, I had the pleasure of reading the new book, The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And of course, one of the great benefits of hosting a podcast is that I also get to talk to the author, Zach Carter. I'm Zach Carter. I am the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, and I am a senior reporter at HuffPost. I have to admit, uh, I had to put down your book about uh, three quarters of the way through and pause for a couple days when you started to get into the rise of neoliberalism and how McCarthyism uh, went after the Keynesian economists and I think all of this is relevant to what's going on today. But that brings me to my, I guess, my first question. What is it that most Americans get wrong about Keynesianism? It's a big question. And I think, unfortunately, the answer is almost everything. Keynes is somebody who most of us encounter in an Econ 101 course. At least that's the way I did. And in that Econ 101 course, I learned that uh, John Maynard Keynes is the economist who argued that governments should spend money during recessions to help sort of pull the economy out of the doldrums and get employment moving again. And that's true. That's that's one of the things Keynes talked about. But Keynes never really thought of himself as a deficit therapist and, and certainly would not have wanted to be remembered as one. He was a social thinker. He was, uh, he was a philosopher and a statesman whose project, intellectual project, was concerned with the great problems of his day. And those problems in particular were World War I, the Great Depression, and uh, the rise of authoritarianism, particularly in Europe, but also you know, authoritarianism was on the rise all over the world in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, we just didn't get Hitlers everywhere. So Keynes is developing these economic ideas in order to prevent war, sort of heal societies that have been torn apart or put under strain by the First World War, and try to create some set of conditions in which the life that he enjoyed at the turn of the 20th century, when he was a member of the, the, the famous Bloomsbury set, people like E.M. Forster and Lytton Strachey and Virginia Woolf, that that sort of life could be enjoyed by people outside the, uh, the very you know, high-flying elite circles that he lived in. So he's concerned with all of these very big ideas about humanity and how to get along. He's not just a guy who talks about deficits. And, and to try to separate the deficit stuff from the rest of his thinking, I think gets certainly got the economics profession into trouble in the in the 1960s and 1970s um, and I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense today when when people are 
are talking about you know big deficits and and shouldering big debt loads uh, to deal with the coronavirus. That's that's all fine and fine and good, but those <laughs> those deficits and those debts are are not ends in, in themselves. They are part of a broader social agenda. Right. So the 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 purpose of I, I think Keynes would have agreed that the purpose of economics is not to uh, keep. Uh, unemployment low and uh, inflation low and balance your budgets. It's actually to lead the good life. Yes. And, and to prevent social upheaval and social unrest. There's a sense in which Keynes is a very conservative thinker in that, in that he's deeply afraid of, of revolution and deeply afraid of sudden radical change, though he's somebody who is constantly advocating rather slow radical change, I think. But he's he's afraid of upheaval because he thinks it could it could break apart the things that allow for him to enjoy this great life he has in Bloomsbury. You know, he really likes drinking champagne with Virginia Woolf. He likes hearing from his friends who are painters about what Gertrude Stein and Pablo Picasso are up to in Paris. So he thinks that's great. And he thinks he thinks revolution and particularly right-wing authoritarian revolution will put that sort of lifestyle uh, in, in jeopardy. And I think you know, when we look today at the way the government has responded to the coronavirus, um, you know, pandemic, certainly there's there are all the failures on the pandemic itself from from the public health standpoint. But I don't think Keynes would look at uh, at Congress and say, well, my goodness, they spent, uh, you know, four and a half trillion, something like that, supporting the economy. Their work is done. Great work. Ran up some big numbers there. Um, he recognized that those big numbers are certainly necessary. But the, the real test of the program for him would be what's happening in the streets. And I think the fact that we had essentially social uprisings across uh, every American city just a few weeks ago uh, is is uh, a testament to the insufficiency of the response, at least in in, in a Keynesian sense. It's fascinating because, of, of course, you talk in the book about what I've always thought was kind of this overblown competition between uh, Hayek and Keynes. Hmm. And, and, I, and I think you present it that way too. It's not like they interacted that much. Uh, Keynes did respond to Hayek, but they both seemed to have a similar goal. They were both trying to prevent, you know, that road to serfdom, the the rise of authoritarianism. They just went in mm-hmm. very different directions. Hayek ultimately won ideologically, um, I guess. It looks to me like uh, that was the road to serfdom. How disappointed. <laughs> Would Keynes be if he saw the world today? Uh, you know, it's it's dangerous to um, to raise the dead and interrogate them. But right. uh, but you know, I I think he would be shocked. Frankly, I don't know if disappointment would be the right word. I think he'd just be totally stunned at at the changes that have been um, wrought in conventional wisdom intellectually and in style of governance uh, and and public policy making since the 1970s. Your point about the Hayek-Keynes sort of feud being overblown, I think, is exactly right. In the 1930s, Hayek and Keynes were both economists, but neither of them were these titanic figures of, uh, of Western intellectual history. Hayek was an obscure professor. Keynes had written a very famous book. So Keynes was somebody who was, who was well-known, but Hayek certainly was not. And, and even Hayek himself came to, to sort of regret the economic arguments that he made against Keynes in the early 1930s. But you're right that they are very much concerned with Enlightenment liberalism, which they're both deeply enamored with. It's a tradition that they both think is very important, these ideas about individual liberty, about freedom of conscience, about the free exchange of ideas and culture across national borders. Uh, This matters very much to both of them, but they have very different 
conceptions about how to achieve those goals. And so I think, you know, it's it's important to understand that Keynes absolutely considers himself a liberal in in the capital L sense, not just the sort of you know Democratic Party vaguely aligned kind of uh, kind of left of center sense. He takes that tradition very seriously, but he believes that if if the economic policies that liberals put forward don't deliver the goods, if, if they do not actually produce a harmonious and happy society, then you will have all of those great enlightenment ideals shattered by authoritarian uprisings. And Hayek sees things very differently. He says, well, look, uh, if, if we do social security, for instance, then we have already broken our, our faith with liberalism. We have, we have shattered individual liberty and freedom of conscience and, and the like just through the act of making those policies. So it's a very different approach, but it's, it's rooted in the same, the same intellectual tradition. So I think today, you know, if you, if you follow online debates among liberals and, and people who call themselves leftists, there's this idea that liberalism is what Hayek said it was. Uh, essentially, the neoliberal sort of triumph since the 1970s is, is true liberalism. And the sort of things that Keynes was talking about those don't count as liberalism anymore. I think Keynes would be very perplexed by that and very upset by it to see that you know a lot of his intellectual allies were in many ways rejecting his uh, his intellectual tradition at the same time. So not only would he be disheartened by the turn in in the way governments sort of treat tr deal with inequality, deal with trade, deal with financial markets, and, and all the rest that we've seen since the 1970s, he'd be very disheartened by the way that the left has sort of accepted the framework that the Hayekian uh, sort of intellectual descendants of Hayek have uh, have insisted is is the right one. Right, because, you know, for all of the uh, McCarthyite attacks on the Keynesians uh, after uh, World War II, Keynes was no socialist. You know, he's a, he's a tricky figure because the word socialism is, uh, it's a very loaded term for him. You know, he visits Bolshevik Russia and is just horrified. On a couple of occasions, his his wife, who he marries in 1925, is is from St. Petersburg, and uh, and so they they go back a couple of times to visit her family there. and And Keynes is not a fan of the the cultural life in in Russia. He doesn't like the things that the government does, the the sort of policy tools they use. But more than that, he doesn't like the air of sort of uh, it's, it's like you're in a in a, a paranoid noir thriller. He he, uh, he just feels like he's being watched all the time and people are whispering about him. And, and it's true because people are. <laughs> it's, a, it's a surveillance state. Um, and he, he thinks that this is bad for art. This is not just unpleasant to live in. It's 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 culturally counterproductive to 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 nurturing that kind of lifestyle and artistic and intellectual experience that that he found so uh, rewarding in Bloomsbury. But at the same time, he talks often about something called liberal socialism, which would be a way of conceiving of society as, as something that had to be taken care of as a whole by the government, but that still respected these individual liberties and, and ideals that come with uh, the liberal tradition. So he is willing to take policy steps that many other people in the liberal tradition at the time were, were unwilling to. At the most radical, we see in, around World War II, you know, he's the financial architect of the National Health Service and the British welfare state. So, I mean, he does play a role in socializing British medicine, a very significant role. But, you know, for much of the 1930s, he's trying to work with the Liberal Party and people like David Lloyd George to to do do things that are uh, sort of a precursor to, to the New Deal in the United States. In many ways, the New Deal, I think, sort of expresses the full ambition of the Keynesian project. But, you know, the New Deal is not just Social Security and deficits. The New Deal is all of these new programs that uh, that had 
it just never existed in the United States. It's it's a total reworking of the nation state and what it can and ought to do. So whether that constitutes socialism or not, you know, I think Keynes, depending on which audience he's talking to, would be very cagey and very careful about about how he used that word because he was, you know, very, he was just appalled by socialism as understood in in Russia. But if if socialism is is social security and the WPA, well, that's that sounds okay to him. <laughs> Right. And and I think one of the things that you do beautifully in this book, both through the biographical details and uh, the summarization of his writings, is um, demonstrating how incredibly intellectually flexible Keynes was, which is, you know, kind of unusual with great men, you know, (laughs) and by great men, I mean mean great men, I mean, great white men. You know, once they achieve some amount of fame, they 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 stick with it and defend it. And Keynes, you know, his thinking changed over time. Yeah, it, it'd be you're right. It becomes sort of a, a brand for people. The, the intellectuals who become known for a particular thing feel like they can never retreat from it because it's because you know being <laughs> being wrong and having a good brand is more important than being right. You know, Keynes comes out of Bloomsbury where people are constantly arguing about art all the time. Um, and so disagreement is not something that is alien to him. Uh, and certainly the Cambridge Economics Department, you know, it's it's really important for people when they think about Keynes and his role as an economist, um, not to mistake the milieu in Cambridge in the 1920s and 30s for the, the sort of American business school style education that people get in economics um, today. And this was this was a place where economists were sort of weirdos. They were they were kind of if you studied economics, it was it was kind of like being a poet or, or a philosopher. You know, these were these were things that were a little bit off the beaten path in, in academia and not necessarily a ticket to, um, you know, to a great public policy job or to power in large part because th- there weren't jobs for economists in the private sector for, for the most part. You know, most economists were, you know, th- that kind of role for, for the profession really arose with um, with the New Deal and the, all of the different types of, of agencies that, that arose from the expansion of the state that we saw there. But, you know, for Keynes, Cambridge is a very collaborative place. Mm-hmm. There isn't a whole lot of, you know, people use each other's ideas, edit each other's papers, um, cite each other all the time. There's, there's not a whole lot of pride of authorship. So in a lot of ways, what we call Keynesian economics what comes out of Cambridge in the 1930s is is a project of of several people working together, and some of these people are even graduate students. Some of them don't even have degrees in economics. Um, but Keynes is is just sort of the director of the orchestra, and and I, I think it's fair to say that he's he's the sharpest guy in in that milieu. But but there are also some you know stone cold geniuses he's working with people like Joan Robinson, right? Um, you know who who are major major economists in their own right uh, after Keynes is gone. Who I think, by the way, you know, there's a lot of characters in this book. Obviously, he's, you know, from the Bloomsbury set and so on. But I, I think Joan Robinson is one of the most fascinating people in this book. And I was only peripherally familiar with her. There's a, a quote, um, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something to the effect of, she said that the purpose of studying economics is to learn how not to be deceived by economists. And uh, but I had no idea how closely she worked with Keynes, and really was a, a silent co-author on uh, the general theory. Yes, and uh, I mean, if you go through the collected writings, there's a, there's a thirty-volume set of Keynes's 
papers and speeches and drafts and letters that are related to, to economics that, that Cambridge University has, has published. When you get to the volume on, on the general theory, it's just hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of stuff being traded back and forth between Robinson and Keynes. It's, it's very clear that the two of them are, are working very closely. He's also working closely with other people at Cambridge who who think he's wrong. <laughs> and so he'll share drafts with people. And I think Dennis Robertson's one of them. Yeah, they'll say, you know, I don't know what you're what you're on to about here, Maynard. This is this makes no sense here. It can't be right. But Robinson, you know, in a lot of ways, Keynes likes that milieu. He likes the back and forth. He likes the idea that he would put something out there that would stimulate conversation and help the world get to the right answer. The thing was not to become, you know, Keynes the great man and lead this school of thought. It was to help the world get closer to to the truth so that good policies could be made and, and society could hang together and he could get back to drinking champagne with Virginia Woolf. For Robinson, it's, she sees the project very differently. She she really thinks Keynesian thought can be a school of of ideas, much the way that uh, you know Marxism was or the way Buddhism is. She sees this as a as, as sort of a discipline and the general theory as being the sort of core text that you have to return to to understand this this school of thought. And she's quite good at teaching students in Cambridge to see the field that way. And when they go back to the United States and start you know, trying to be academics or, or working in the Roosevelt administration, they take that thinking with them. So she's enormously influential, even on people who don't end up coming to see Keynesianism the way that she does. People who ultimately, you know, over the decades after Keynes's death, have sharp dif- disagreements with her about what is significant or important in the general theory. The fact that they feel like they need to talk about it as an important text is something they're getting from Robinson. Uh, there are a lot of books on economics that are published in the 1920s and 1930s saying, no, 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 the profession's got it all wrong. We need to uh, we need to, to change course. And a lot of those books talk about policy ideas that end up being implemented later, but we don't talk about them the way we talk about Keynesian economics. And it's, it's kind of funny that Robinson, I think more than anyone else, is responsible for that. And yet we don't call it Robinsonian economics, we call it Keynesian economics. In the book, you talk about a speech she gave late, late in her life uh, in which she gave the entire economics profession a real tongue lashing. She had a way with words, and when she's when she's writing and talking for the public, it can be just it can be wonderful to to go through it because she's so clear. She uses metaphor in a way that makes her ideas very accessible to people who are not you know professionally trained economists. But when she's talking to professionally trained economists, she can just be absolutely vicious. And this speech from uh, from the meeting of the American Economics Association. I, don't have it in front of me. It's seventy-one or seventy-two. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith had invited her to give to give the keynote address. Galbraith and Robinson were great friends, and in many ways, I think you know later in his career, Robinson's sort of the most important Robinson disciple in the United States. But Robinson just just says, you know, look, the Keynesian approach to economics has been a failure. We have not fixed war. We have not fixed poverty. We have not saved the environment. We're sitting around here patting ourselves on the back for solving all of the problems that we think economics is tasked with solving. Uh, and in a sense, we have because we've defined economics in such a way that it only answers the questions that don't need to be asked. <laughs> all of the <laughs> questions that are important have been have been sort of shoved off to, to other areas. And, and so she's very disappointed. But, you know, she was she was doing the same thing that Keynes was in important ways. You know, she, Keynes believed very deeply that getting it right, that showing people, presenting good ideas and persuading people with them was a way to 
influence politicians, public policy, politics in, in, in the world at large. And that was a very controversial thing to believe in the 1930s because the, the more popular version of, of sort of social critique against the established order was Marxism and a, a very you know kind of crude form of Marxism, which just held that there was nothing you could do about the problems in the world through the political process, that the, the state was the executive committee of the bourgeoisie, that nothing but, but social revolution would work because vested interests would always protect their territory. And, uh, and so Robinson, whose politics were you know, probably closer to those Marxists than they were to, to Keynes's own politics, spends much of her life trying to persuade economists that that Keynes is right. I mean she she is she is on this this very similar kind of project of of using ideas to 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 shape the world even though she herself often criticizes Keynes for <laughs> for being too naive about the way politics work and and, and the way power is uh, is distributed. Let's talk a bit about the so-called Keynesianism of the 1970s that uh, Robinson criticized you know, one of the narratives today is that the neoliberal era, era we're in came out of the um, the failure of this of Keynesianism in the 1970s with stagflation. Mm-hmm. That the the Keynesian economists had no answer to this when we had uh, uh, high inflation and high unemployment at the same time, and Milton Friedman was uh, uh, ready with an alternative, and Lo and behold, we have the past 45 years. Mm-hmm. Was that Keynesianism? Would Keynes have recognized the economics of the time as Keynesianism? You know, it's Keynesianism because that's what people started calling Keynesianism. But Keynes himself, I think, would have been a little perplexed. Um, as you were, you were mentioning earlier, Keynes is somebody who's capable of changing his mind. He was not a doctrinarian, but even had he been a doctrinarian, the, the type of doctrine that people were pursuing in, in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in some ways was aligned with Keynes' thinking and in some ways very much was was not. The projects that, that Johnson was concerned with domestically, like the Great Society, you know, this is a massive expansion of, of the state in a lot of ways. When we think of the New Deal what we're and, and its significance, um, we're overstating what, what Roosevelt achieved uh, because many of those programs survived in much more ambitious forms um, after they were reformed by uh, by Johnson and the Great Society. So these are enormously successful programs. The, the mention of Medicare, you know, poverty declines drastically after the Great Society initiatives begin. This includes you know, voting rights, uh, all sorts of civil rights uh, reforms that you know are also under attack today, <laughs> right. many of which have been repealed as well. But you know, the Vietnam War is not something that Keynes would have been enthusiastic about. He he spent his whole life trying to prevent war, and he believed that economic policy was a, a very effective tool, um, maybe the only effective tool that could be deployed uh, nonviolently to prevent war. And the fact that there were Keynesian economists or people who called themselves Keynesian in in both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, saying you know, it, the, the thing we need to do is spend money. It doesn't really matter so much what we spend it on. We could, we could spend it on, on, you know, napalm and machine guns, or, or we could spend it on, uh, on welfare checks. Uh, so long as we're spending, we're going to, we're going to get the economy <laughs> up and moving again. That would have been horrifying to Keynes. That, that, that right. would have... he, he said that, but he meant it as a metaphor. He didn't mean it literally, <laughs> right. Uh, right? That you, you could just, you know, bury it in the ground and pay people to dig up money, but that's not 
you know, he wasn't advocating for that. Yes. And in, in Robinson's speech to the AEA in 72, she, she actually says, you know, you guys are idiots. He didn't actually want people to bury stuff in the backyard and then pay people to dig it up. You know, that's not the right idea. Right. Uh, build, build useful stuff. Right, right. And the, the, the way that the profession became technical, you know, there are a couple sides to Keynes. He is very much a technocrat who is good with numbers and capable of devising very detailed and fine-tuned policies to address specific problems. But he wasn't obsessed with creating rigid sort of technical doctrines that had to be followed no matter what um, the case, you know, the, the circumstances were. And so one of the the sort of intellectual tools that becomes very, very popular in the in the 50s and 60s is this thing called the Phillips curve. And right. it, it's named after an Australian economist named Phillips, but uh, but it really becomes popularized because of the work of Robert Solo and Paul Samuelson in the United States, who expand on this initial insight and do a lot more research in in uh, uh, with with American data, and then start putting it most most importantly in Samuelson's economics textbook. So the Phillips curve says this doctor says there's a trade off between unemployment and inflation that you can have a little more unemployment and a little less inflation or a little more inflation and a little less unemployment. But no matter what you do, it's those two, when you're adjusting aggregate demand, those two have to move in opposite directions. And when you get to the night, the late 1960s and the early 1970s, that stops happening. You start seeing unemployment and inflation going up at the same time. And so clever people like Milton Friedman point to this and say, aha, because Paul Samuelson says this is impossible. And Paul Samuelson is a Keynesian. Keynesianism is disproved. And Friedman has a whole story about how the Keynesian project from really World War II on got everything wrong. He gives this very famous speech in 1967, which becomes sort of the the, found, the intellectual foundation for the, the neoliberal takeover of, of the American government in, in the later 1970s, um, beginning with the Carter administration. But the thing to remember about that speech is that almost everything Friedman says in that 1967 speech is wrong. Right. <laughs> um, he gets his characterization of what Keynes and Keynesians said in World War II is incorrect. We were not experiencing high inflation in 1967. We only really had moderate inflation in the early 70s. And it, so, so the, the, this sort of we're about to go off a cliff and have hyperinflation prediction that that Friedman has doesn't hold water either. And his historical story is just is just nonsense. But he's a very persuasive guy and he does bring together a lot of data. So, some to, of which he fudged, point. actually, a lot of which he fudged, it turns out. It doesn't hold up that well in retrospect, I think. Yes. <laughs> and, and things like, you know, you know, we don't have to get into, into the definition of monetarism here, but, but he believes that, that essentially there's this thing that exists outside of government that's called the economy, and the only variable that, that the government needs to worry about is, is the money supply. But he can't decide what the money supply is, um, what constitutes money, because once he comes up with a specific definition – None of this story makes any sense. Historically, the, the trends just don't just don't hold up. So it's not only not useful, it's just not intellectually uh, coherent. But it doesn't matter. He's a persuasive guy. And look, the economy of the 1970s, the mid-1970s is not great. I mean, we do have double-digit inflation and double-digit unemployment. And the reasons for that are complicated. Um, certainly, I think the oil embargo that the United States was living through contributed quite a bit to that because you you need oil right. and everything so uh, to ship everything. So that's causing prices to go up. But but it's not the only thing that's causing prices right. to we, go up. We go off the the gold standard. I mean, there's good or bad. It's it's a shock. Right. You know, even people like Galbraith say, you know, look, all this military spending has been inflationary. Um, we have to be honest about that. 
so I find inflation a very tricky thing. Um, and I there's there's a lot there was a lot going on in the 1970s. I don't have a you know a clear cut answer for why we had stagflation, but historically the the point that matters is that is that people did pick up on Friedman's sort of doctrine. And they picked up on it not only because he was a persuasive guy who made arguments that seemed compelling, but because he was closely aligned with politicians on on the right who believed they could implement that agenda in ways that would fuel their own social projects, which were were very different from the social projects that that Keynes and, and FDR and LBJ would have approved of. So Friedman, most importantly, you know, in the 1950s, when he was, but before he was a famous economist, was trying to devise housing policies that would allow wealthy white families to get around Brown versus the Board of Education right. and stay in segregated schools. So, all of these economists who become famous have very serious and detailed social visions that they are working to implement. They're not just pursuing the science and the data wherever it takes them and then and then saying, oh, well, I guess we have to privatize all the schools. Um, Keynes was pretty open about this during his life. I don't think Friedman was quite as open, but he was open about his politics. He did discuss you know, his worldview, his conception of freedom in, in books, and, and he was an advisor to Barry Goldwater and uh, was, was quite- and, Yeah, and Pinochet. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 authoritarians like <laughs> who Hayek also adv- advised as well. The idea that the economics profession can be, and that the turn in the the sort of consensus about what was reasonable and what was good economics that takes place in the 1970s, the idea that that's attributable only to science and to and to looking at the Phillips curve breaking down, I think is I think is a bit naive. It happens because politicians who are rising stars, who are having success because of the bad economic conditions of the 1970s, want to use neoliberal economics to pursue their social project. And look, we know that economists still act like this today. um, And yet, we still allow economists to say, well, here's the data, Uh, what can you do? And I think in certain ways, it's led to a distrust with the profession among the public and sort of degraded the respect for the expertise in in ways that Keynes would have found very troubling. There should be some disrespect. (laughs) Uh, I I mean, look at the world, right? uh, Yeah, economics has failed us. I mean, this is the the world we have right now, the, the level of extreme radical inequality and the we had this conversation with Nancy McLean about this. the The goal of uh, economists like Buchanan was to destroy democracy. They were fundamentally anti-democratic. You have that quote from Friedman about Pinochet that you know, given the choice between economic liberty and political liberty, he'd choose economic liberty. He was okay with an authoritarian government. I think that's Hayek, but um, was it but, Hayek but, or Friedman? I think so. But okay. free, I mean, look, Friedman might have said something very similar, so I, I could be, I, I don't want to, certainly his politics were similar in that respect, so I don't think, um, and, you know, Friedman was a guy who, who like Hayek, would say things like, you know, uh, a minimum wage is socialism, pre- right. progressive taxation is socialism, and, and the, choice bet- the choice between socialism and liberty, uh, you know, it, for him, we really are talking about, about a, a, a state that does not do anything to take care of uh, of its people, Friedman is is much more radical in this than Hayek is in the Road to Serfdom. You know, the Road to Serfdom is a strange book in a lot of ways because much of the narrative just doesn't match Hayek's policy, politics. Well, well, it, it it's funny because I you know talking about raising the dead, I'd love to see a debate between 1940s Hayek and 1970s Hayek. 
<laughs> yes, yes. In the, right. In the 1940s, he's talking about, he said, well, we have to, we have to regulate things because otherwise the environment will fall apart. And we have to have some, some sort of decent minimum standard of living for people because otherwise they'll all die and revolt. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and all of these things, which he later is just like, no, 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 let's, let's, let's advise the guy pushing people out of helicopters. Yeah. Uh, but you know, that is always happening. It's always happening. And, and it's, and it's inescapable. The economics profession is, it's an inherently political thing because you can't have an economy without, without governing, uh, without social structures that um, pull levers of power, but also because the economics profession has become the sort of priesthood that governments turn to, to say, look, my, my program is legitimate. Without the economics profession, there's no sort of independent observer who can say, ah, yes, the politicians have it right, or oh no, the politicians have it wrong. So the profession just is part of the political process at, at this point, which was not true in the 1930s when Keynes was writing. You know, if you wanted to get a great job uh, in in the British Treasury or at the Bank of England, you would do just as well to have studied mathematics or poetry or art um, and then had a, a few years uh, working at, say, Lloyd's Bank than if you would you had studied economics. I mean, that was, that was a peculiar thing to do. It wasn't seen as the, the sort of great entree into policymaking. So uh, I know we're running out of time. Uh, let, let's try to answer, answer the question I think I almost asked at the beginning. What is Keynesianism? In, in a way that Keynes might agree with your answer. I think Keynesianism is more a way of looking at the world um, than a specific set of policies or, or policy tools. Um, Keynes was a very great optimist, in many ways, uh, I think, a delusional optimist. But he always believed that humanity's problems were made by, by humanity. They weren't facts of nature that were unalterable. The world could become a better place if we just made it better. Tomorrow could always be better than today. And that spirit of optimism, in many ways, I think, led him astray politically because he, you know, he lost most of the political battles during his lifetime. Between World War I and World War II, Almost every single major policy fight that he gets into, uh, he loses. He only starts to become really influential during the war and then after the war and, and after his death. But I think that spirit of optimism is really is really essential to understanding Keynes and Keynesianism. And I think his belief in the good life, that, that, that art and love are, are these central things that make, uh, that make life worth living, and they're not exclusive goods. You know, you can enjoy the same painting that I enjoy without diminishing our love of the moment in any way, that there are social things that people can do together and appreciate together that, that make the world a richer and better place that are not based on, on making sure that some people have more than others. So I think he'd see it as a project of social harmony. One way of saying that is that it's a project to, Keynesianism is a project designed to, to reduce inequality. I think that's the language we'd use today. I think he would think that language is a little bit narrow. He'd say, you know, this isn't just math. You know, this is this is the way societies hang together. This is the way people interact with each other. This is the way societies interact with one another, the way that people who are different come together to do things that they couldn't do apart. That, that's a that's a long answer and it's a complicated one. But I, I think that spirit is essential to understanding the economics without the economics, without that that idea, those ideas, the economics don't make any sense at all. And so the fact that we've spent so much time trying to make sense of the economics in a vacuum, I, I think is part of the reason that the project has been so unsuccessful. Right. I, you know, I think uh, in economics, they make this distinction between positive economics and normative economics. 
And I, it looks to me like, like Haynes didn't make that distinction. <laughs> it's all normative. <laughs> it's all normative, right. In that this is, you should worry about what it should be uh, and, and not as much what it is. Yes. Know, describing it yeah. well well that's great i i really enjoyed the book are you working on it, it looks like it was a big project <laughs> are you working on anything else <laughs> yes yes book took forever i mean i started working on it in a sense right after the financial crisis of 2008 but um you know from the when i started writing the proposal to when i finished this about four years but the next book is called fields of fire it is also with random house and my editor over there uh, molly turpin and it is uh it's it's a look at the populist uprising uh, movement revolt of the 1880s and 1890s and to told through the eyes of a few key figures who I haven't quite figured out who <laughs> yet, but uh, you know, it'll be a couple years and, uh, and then hopefully I'll have a great deal to talk to you about um, when, yeah. when it's done. That, uh, I, that sounds great. And when, and when you're done with that, you can talk about, you can write a book on the populist uprisings of the 2020s. Yes. Well, I think that's where we're headed. So, uh... Uh, oh God, it's a scary world out there right now. It is, but we can make it better. It's actually possible. I, from from Kane's uh, lips to uh, my ears. I don't know how that works. <laughs> to God's ears. There you go. Sounds right to me. Yeah. Th thanks for your time, Zach. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we talk with political philosopher Elizabeth Anderson about the modern workplace, the communist dictatorships in our midst. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.